This dealer went from selling cars on eBay to cashing out of his $2 billion car auction app. But instead of retiring at 40 and playing golf, he's already out to build the next big thing in the wholesale car business. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Neiman, the serial entrepreneur who co-founded ACV Auctions, a publicly traded digital marketplace for dealers to buy and sell used cars. We discussed how the thrill of car auctions inspired his industry-disrupting app, the systemic incentive issues plaguing the auction block, if there's a silver bullet for car sale success, his massive announcement, and much more. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. People ask me all the time, CDG, can you help me fill an open role in my company? Well, now I can. I'm excited to announce my new industry job board. I've built this job board so that employers in the auto industry can take advantage of my network and distribution. Your company needs roles filled and I have access to talent. It's a win-win situation. This job board is for anyone in automotive, vendors, dealers, lenders, manufacturers, auto tech, you get the point. The best part is that posting roles is 100% free. Over 50 companies have already posted open roles, including Lithia Motors, Recurrent, Credit Acceptance, Cars Commerce, Shift Digital, and over 20 dealer groups. Add your open roles today by visiting my website at dealershipguide.com and clicking on industry job board or visit the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by Stream Companies. Stream Companies is the type of agency partner that easily becomes an extension of your team, fully engaged in the growth of your business. Their impressive team of auto industry and marketing experts dive in to understand your business needs, study the data, and provide full media strategies that leverage every channel that is right for your specific business and its goals. Stream is fully integrated, full service, and just celebrated 28 years of consecutive growth, a feat that is only possible through collaborative partnerships and exceptional customer service. From building your brand to leveraging their patented ad tech, Stream is driven to capture the attention of your shoppers and convert them into buyers. They work with some of the biggest and best dealerships in the country and serve all OEMs. To learn more, head to streamcompanies.com today where you can book a free advertising audit. Their team will dive deep into your online presence and digital advertising to uncover all your immediate opportunities for growth. Lastly, this episode is also brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly 15,000 dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology, and while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com DXP or clicking the link in the show notes below. Joe Neiman on the CDG podcast. Joe, welcome. Good morning. Happy to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you on the first podcast that I'm doing without an animation. So this is a big one. <laughs> There's that beautiful face. Yeah, yeah, right. So at least someone thinks that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Got the CDG hat going, you know what I mean? So we're, we're in business. Um, Love it. Super pumped about this. Super pumped to have you on. Dude, do you know when I first came across you? I don't think I don't even think I told you this. No, I don't think we talked about that. So you were always very active on like the dealer Facebook groups. Yes. And I was, you believe it or not, I was not active or I wasn't posting, but I was consuming. And I would always see your name and, and I was like, dude, this guy, this guy is sharp because I knew at the time that you were already working at, you know, a much larger company, ACV Auctions, which we'll get into shortly, which you also co-founded or founded or co-founded. I, I would say I was the industry guy. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. We, we did it. There were three of us from the start, but I'm definitely the car guy. Yeah. So either way, I just remember seeing your name and I'm like, dude, you are, you're getting a crowd. And I, I respected that because you, you know what you did, whether you just, you were aware of this or not, but I guess I can say we now in the social media world call like community engagement. You were very engaged with the community, responding to people and that you build that personal connection very, very well early on. So kudos to you for that. Cause I definitely took notice of that. You did a great job. Yeah, it was, I think it was necessary at the time. And it felt good doing it. You know, it was genuine interaction with our customers. So it was, a, it was a great, it was a great place to have those, form those connections. Well, you guys definitely built a lot the ACV. So, I mean, l- let's get into, can you start us with your background? Give us some of the early days in your early automotive career. How'd you even get into automotive and, you know, sort of work your, work your way up? 
Yeah, don't don't let me get too into the weeds, but I was definitely one of I'll those kids. You. I'll stop you. <laughs> I trust you. I was one of those kids, you know, obsessed with cars from a young age. It was not a family business by any means, but I started working at my uncle's repair shop, just breaking down tires, you know, emptying waste oil bins when I was like uh, 15 in the summers. And he hooked me up with a car that was otherwise going to go to the scrapyard. It was like an 88 Honda Civic. And he, he didn't ask me to buy it. He told me to buy it. And it was $50. And we're, we're going back a lot of years now, around 2000. I said, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't have my license or anything. He said, well, fix it up, you know? So I did and put a couple hundred bucks in it. I bought it for 50, probably $300 in it by the time I was done. And I sold it for 900. And at 15 years old, that was kind of like a light bulb moment. Um, <laughs> you made so, the first buck. Yeah, I made first real buck. And I was always a worker anyways, you know, doing landscaping stuff. So I had the work ethic. It just, the cars gave me something to focus on. So all through high school, I was flipping cars out of my parents' driveway. Um, this really pretty much predates most of Craigslist. I probably was putting it on there, maybe some other places. And then in college, I turned that up a bit. I was always able to find like a used car dealer whose license I could use. So I didn't have to have my own spot, kind of rent a little bit from them and give them a little, a little piece of the profit on each car. But I, I developed my, my niche was cheaper, but specialty type cars that I could sell on eBay. Oh, so you sold eBay. Yeah, I was big time on eBay. I mean, what year was this? 2007 to 2013, 2014. But we got to the point where we were one of eBay's, they claimed, I don't know how true this is, but one of their top 50 producing dealers on eBay. It's a little hard for me to believe, but we didn't use it as a lead gen tool. We used it as a transaction platform. So we listed a lot of cars, no reserve. That got dicey because the market kind of dried up on there for a while. But our stuff got sold. It wasn't, again, it wasn't like fishing. It was spear hunting. We were putting stuff out there, lifted trucks, Jeeps, you know, lower cost Corvettes, but stuff that customers on a national and sometimes international scale or platform would, would be interested in. And how big was this operation? Like give us some context of numbers. Yeah. I, I eventually got it to the point. I was like 26 years old. We'd taken over an old Chevy dealership. We would sell about 50 cars a month, but we'd be doing that with 50 cars in inventory. So the turn time, our average turn time was like 20 something days. I didn't even realize it at the time, but kind of ahead of the curve, I guess. Some big meaty profits, not always, but we focused on the cars with eyeball. We knew how to present them. We had an indoor photo room. We took the body shop location of the dealership and converted that into 35 by 35 photo room which most people would say was a crazy waste of space. But fast forward, and now everybody's got a photo room. Table stakes. Yeah, yep. exactly. Uh, like exactly. You pretty much created this career on eBay. You mentioned taking over to Chevy dealership. I'm assuming you were, were you doing any retail at the Chevy dealership or were you still only online? We did, we did probably 50-50. But my focus and my, and my desire and my heart really was in the online sales. We, we, we wouldn't turn a local customer away, but it was much, for me, it was much cleaner and more fun to go and get the wire transfer. You know, we were doing some finance stuff, but primarily it was like, hey, let's make a three, five, six grand front end deal and put that thing on a truck and ship it away and never see it again. And, and that felt really good. Where were you acquiring most of your cars? Auctions. Auctions. Yeah. That was definitely, yeah, that was definitely the years of the, you know, of the up and up in on eBay, eBay Motors. I mean, Texas Auto Direct was, you know, obviously number one online eBay dealer from Texas, at least back then. I don't know about it today. No, you you know what happened to them, right? Well, yeah, they have room just shut down. So no more Texas Auto, apparently. <laughs> it's amazing uh, how it was. It's incredible. Yeah. Grace. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's, you know, the end game there. I mean, I guess, unless this is, but needless to say, they built quite an empire during those years. Yes, they did. So fast forward us a little bit now. When I listen to your story, and obviously I have I've done some research here, so I have some more background on you. You know, you went from flipping cars to building a multi-billion dollar publicly traded online auction platform, ACV Auctions. I'm sure many people listening here have heard about it. If you haven't, check it out. How? Give, bridge, <laughs> and I know that's a fully loaded question, but bridge yeah. that gap for us. How you went from this dealership to launching an auction platform. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of it was kind of leapfrogging from one one thing to the next and not always knowing where we were going to land. But in, in 2014, I really just started to get frustrated with my dealership. I had a dozen employees. I know a lot of people go through the same things. I was in my mid-20s. I had guys working for me that were in their mid-40s. I didn't know exactly how to manage people, you know, at the time and, and managing techs and managing salespeople. It's, it can be challenging. And I was technically still a kid at the time. There was some profit compression. There were more people. Like I used to be the only guy walking around the auction. I had a laptop or I had with an air card stuck in the side, if you remember that, or an iPad, like a first gen iPad. And I would find these cars on eBay comparable, you know, to what I was looking at at the auction. So I had a really clear path to what I knew I could sell the car for. Anyways, I wasn't the only one who, who was still doing that, right? Some people were creeping in. And it just, you know, the Volkswagen TDIs that I used to be able to make four grand on now is, you know, struggling to make 1500. It just kind of took some of the fun out of it. So I started to look at my other options. And I had an opportunity to go work for a, a big new car group. And so I said, you know what, I'm in a good cash spot. If I go and liquidate everything, I'm going to do it. And I ripped the bandaid off and I liquidated my dealership and went to go work for this new car group. And needless to say, I was not a good fit in their corporate machine. They got a, a really efficient dialed in thing. And I was a little bit of a cowboy, I guess you could say. But I was used to being my own operator. You know, I never worked for anybody. I did that for about six months. And what I learned in that experience, the, the big takeaway was as much as the used car dealer that's primarily acquiring inventory at the auction, and as much as there's struggle and hardship going. And I loved the auctions. Don't get me wrong. It, it was my favorite part of the business, but it was tough. And my naive perspective was these, these Ford dealers, the Lexus dealers, the guys that are bringing 20 trades a week, they're just minting money when they're standing up on the block. And I, I literally, I mean, this is what I thought because I never sat in their shoes. I move into the new car world. I couldn't believe how inconsistent the profit and loss was from what they appraised the car for to what it actually sold at the auction. For. Yeah, the whole in the wholesale world. Correct. Correct. So what what the light bulb moment for me was that, geez, there is there is pain and challenge and a, a lack of consistency on both sides of the equation. Really, both customers, the sellers and the buyers, need a better option than than what they're currently dealing with. So that's the backstory. I I left the new car dealership. And I just kind of jumped in headfirst into trying to figure out how to do this. And I'm not a technology guy at all, but I knew how to use an iPhone. I knew what I wanted that app to be. I knew what I wanted ACV's user experience to be. And so I was very fortunate in, in Buffalo, New York, of all places, I was able to find a co-founder, Dan, who was a great tech guy and knew a lot of people and knew how to build this stuff. And then we got linked up with another guy who was a really great finance guy, Jack. So the three of us had this really unique kind of partnership where I think a lot of what we were told by a lot of venture capitalists was it's very unusual to have the industry guy, the tech guy, and the finance guy. And so it, even though the vision might have been a bit of a reach for the investor community to, to really believe that it was going to get traction, we had the right people around the table early on. And so they they bought into it. They believed that we had a solid plan. We built the thing out and we started it in Buffalo, New York. And you know, I, I literally just banged on doors and we got a whole bunch of used car dealers signed up that said, you know, sure, if if cars come on the platform, would you bid on them? And, and enough of them said yes. Then we went and just hit on the new car stores and most of them said no, but was able to get a few early on. To, to say yes and went and listed their cars and they transacted. I mean, it's to me, it wasn't rocket science. You know, I used to buy a lot of a lot of cars on phone calls. So of course I sourced most of my cars at the auction, but from people that I trusted, used car managers, wholesalers, a lot of these guys would call me. It was repeat business. They'd run a truck past me and send me a couple pictures via text. And I'd say, you know, we'd agree on a price and it was a done deal. So the idea of launching 20 minute long spontaneous auctions out, scattershotting them to a, a buyer base, it, it didn't seem unreasonable and it proved, proved to work. You launched, I mean, a ACV auctions, it's always had a different type of auction. The way it functions It's not like a traditional auction where you go, you know, car comes through the lane, bidding, 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 next car comes in. And I, I mean, I guess in a way it's similar to that, but it's digital. So you have a timer, a countdown, 
Why did you decide to do that? To me, that was something very different. I remember the first time downloading the app and seeing an ACV auction. It was just a, it was a new type of experience that I wasn't used to. Why did you decide to do that? The, the physical auctions do a really good job. It, w- it was an accident, right? <laughs> no, it wasn't That's an accident. <laughs> no, it wasn't an accident at all. It was it was what I wanted to do is I wanted to legitimize those spontaneous phone calls and text messages. I'm a car dealer at heart, right? If I'm sitting at dinner, this is not something I'm proud of, but if I'm sitting at dinner with my wife and you a wholesaler texts me and runs a car past me, I'm I'm gonna respond. Because it's if I don't, I'm gonna miss that opportunity. I know I'm not the only one he's he's, you know, sending that car out to. He's shopping it past three or four guys he knows. So to me, there's there's a thrill and an excitement factor of being able to have an opportunity to to buy a car out of the blue. And and what I really saw too was was I wanted to serve both customers. I feel like the best marketplaces, they don't pick sides. They don't go, I'm for the buyer, I'm for the seller. They go, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it better for both of them. And going back to what I saw in the new car stores, I saw a huge cumbersome burden on getting these cars to an auction. If it doesn't sell the first week, it's sitting behind a fence. You know, maybe the keys are getting stolen, maybe they're not, maybe somebody's pulling spark plug wires, maybe not. And then it's the next week. And does it cross the block? Does it not cross the block? And the car is held hostage. The whole thing was just like, this is harder than it needs to be. Leave the car right in the parking lot, take some pictures of the thing, list it, let's sell it in 20 minutes. There are there are buyers out there that if you just put the chum in front of them, they're going to bite. So that was the notion. And I think we played into the psychology of the car dealer really well. And that And that's exactly what's going through my head, right? In hindsight, it seems so ingenious, right? Because like you said, it's like you you get them hooked, right? Hey, I want to get that next best deal, right? You get that push notification. You see that next car that comes on the platform. You literally gamified the process and you played into the psychology, which you were doing anyways, just manually. You put some tech behind it. Right. Incredible. And the whole thing, truthfully, the whole thing is a game, right? And that's not a bad thing, but car auctions are legalized gambling for car dealers. I have no interest in going to a casino. I love going to a car auction. It's a thrill. And and I'm not the only one that feels that way. That's a that's a shared <laughs> that's a shared love, you know? Yeah. Do do you feel like today in the state of, you know, mainly digital auctions, do you think that that's, you know, sort of lost for the industry? Very much so. Very much so. And that's why I think truthfully, I think the the best auction experience right now is that independent owned physical auction, family owned, you know, and and it's what not just them, but I'll be honest about this. It's what ACV went out to go and, and disrupt and, and kill off. But they've, they're so resilient and they know their customers so well that they've been able to, through reputation and relationships, maintain their foothold. And if anything, I think they're gaining a bunch of traction back because they're giving that, that those customers the experience they crave. Because there's more, it's my belief that there's more to an auction than just the cars. And the day. What do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah, what so, do you mean by that? Yep. I, the best example I can, or the best way I can kind of frame this is in my thinking, at an auction, there's two major components that need to be equally represented to have successful transactions. And that is what you're auctioning, so the car itself, but then also the reputation of that seller who's bringing that car to market. And if you're blind to either of those, the buyers are not informed and they really can't make safe bidding decisions. So if you have a really crappy condition report, you know, let's say there was a condition report that had three pictures instead of 30 pictures. Is that buyer informed? Can they make a good decision? No, I don't think they can. On the flip side, if you've got a seller and you have no idea who that seller is, versus, hey, you know, I know I've bought 20 cars from this guy before. And every time, 19 out of 20 times, there were no problems. And the one time there was a problem, he said, don't worry about it, Joe, I value your business. Just give me the car back. Right? So it's you don't have a problem. Now, now I feel safe in that transaction, I'm going to show up to that and, and bid fully, right with no fear. I don't think the online auctions are capturing that that reputational piece. And I think that's powerful. I mean, you spent, I want to say almost a decade, maybe a decade building ACV. And clearly there's been other entrants into the market since and, you know, other iterations on online auctions. And you don't think that online auctions today are truly delivering the best possible experience for the dealer. I think, 
I think there's room for improvement, you know? Yep. Yep. But I also think at the physical auctions, what I'm talking about is not, it's, it's not captured anywhere. You have to be a regular attendee of that auction. You have to know the players. You have to get that tribal knowledge. You have to make mistakes. It's a costly, lengthy process that a lot of people don't even survive. I mean, a lot of used car dealers are undercapitalized and if they make too many decisions that are, you know, poor buying decisions in a row, it, it can tank them in a month or two. I don't think that the seller side should be that blind. I mean, there's people right now, dealers that I know well that I would buy, like I said, they, I'd buy cars from them on a phone call, right? I'd buy them on a text message, but it's because of, I know who they are. I know they're not going to take advantage of me. I know they're going to the reputation. It's all about reputation. Yep. What do you think, what do you think is the biggest flaw today with the online auctions? What do you think really would be the changes to create a simply, you know, 10x platform, something so much better? I think you got to start fresh. Truthfully, I think that it's a difficult position that they've found themselves in. They're all fighting for, for consignment. They all have numbers they need to hit. And when you do that, you, you sort of become a desperation dumping ground. And now that's not universal, okay? There's plenty of great cars from reputable dealers that transact on these platforms. But it doesn't take that many bad dealers and bad cars to go and kind of mess up the reputation in a, in a meaningful way. So I think there's room in the market for a new platform that, I don't know, comes out of the gate focused on reputation management first and foremost. Take us a level deeper. You're teasing us over here. Jim. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, you're speaking and my wheels are turning. I mean, w- what does that look like, right? W- what does that new platform look like? What does focusing on reputation really mean? You know, see, I don't know exactly, but I've got, a, I've got a lot of ideas and this is my passion. So this is the stuff I go to bed thinking about and that I wake up in the morning thinking about is car auctions. You know, it's, it's kind of an odd obsession, but even if you just look back on my, on my history, I've always been obsessed, whether I knew it or not, with these different marketplaces. You know, eBay was such a phenomenon to me. And then I found myself questioning when I was starting ACV, like, why am I the guy to be doing this? But then it did actually make sense because of all the stuff I was doing on eBay and at the car auctions three days a week, you know, in the snow, in the heat. So I just try and capture the pieces of a physical interaction experience, um, immersive type auction experience. And I, I guess I obsess about the different components of that, then how to digitize those, how to make those an online experience without losing precious pieces of that equation. What do you, what do you think could possibly do that? What do you think could evolve the online car buying experience? Do you think it's VR or is it more a human connection? How do you see this? I'm a huge believer in AI. And, and, and my definition of AI is not artificial intelligence. It's, it's actual intelligence. <laughs> oh, I love that. The second you said, I'm a huge believer in AI, the first thing goes to my mind, I'm like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> actual intelligence. That's great. I, I really like, I personally don't care about, and I think all that stuff is a bunch of noise. I know, I know I'm a bit of a Neanderthal in that sense, but to me, car buying, especially in wholesale, is a belly-to-belly sport. It's a reputation-based, relationship-based industry. And I don't think that's ever going to change. I think the more that some of these big companies lean into AI, the more they actually lose connectivity with their customers. And and I don't know what the end game is. What's the end game? Computers are going to CR the cars and computers are going to buy the cars. And who's going to who's going to then buy those cars? Computers? No. I mean, ultimately, it has to touch a person. So you got to have that human element in this. And, and that's where I want to over-index is on the human side. And you can, drive the, you can drive the desired human behaviors by creating a thoughtful marketplace with the right incentives. And I, I don't think that's rocket science. I mean, if I, can, if I can figure out how to do that, it's not rocket science. I'm not a genius. So I'm a, I'm a relatively smart guy in the car business who's got a lot of experience and really knows his customers. That's kind of how I think about myself. So, so if I'm putting two and two together, right, 
you leave ACV auctions after almost a decade where you've obviously been very successful and you know we have to assume you made a few money over there. It was a good run. It was a good run. You don't need the money right now, right? You're you're everything you're talking about, right? It's it's in you know in essence for sport, as I like to say, right? You truly care about this. You enjoy this. It's something that that gives you drive. If I'm putting two and two together, I mean, are you launching an auction platform? I wouldn't rule it out. I'm thinking about it, right? And so I took a year. I had a non compete. I, I I tried out retirement. And I bought and sold a lot of collector cars out of my garage and I still got the itch, you know? And, and so again, this is the stuff I think about. I've got a domain. Hey, that's, that's step one for every entrepreneur. It's <laughs> <laughs> right, the website. And I've got, I've got a lot of stuff documented, but these things take time. And, and what I would do differently if I were to do something this time, I would invest the time and the money and it's going to be my resources this time, you know, not, not venture capitalists because I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't need to do that. But I, I would put the time and energy required, no matter how long it takes to bring a really fully developed marketplace to the world versus how all these other platforms have to start. And I, and I get it. They have to, they have to launch an MVP, you know, a minimum viable product. They have to get out there and, and get adoption. And then you're scrambling the whole time while managing daily, you know, customers and transactions, you're trying to improve the product and it's, it's hard to do. If I'm going to do something else, I'm going to put the time in, I'm going to take my time, you know, and we'll launch something that is, is fully baked as it possibly can be at launch. So that's going to take time, but it's definitely, it's more than on my mind. If I guess I went and bought a, a, a domain name. What would you have done differently in hindsight? When you, when you think about your time at ACV and having built such a you know powerful auction platform, what do you what would you have done differently? You know, I, I think about that a lot, or at least I used to. I don't know if I would have done anything differently. And and the reason I say that is, I look back at that and that was a tremendous success for me personally, which is very nice. But I also think it was a a, a great success for the industry. It really moved the industry forward in a big way. And you know, are there product things different that I would have done differently or that I wanted to do? Absolutely. I don't know if that stuff would have worked or not. I mean, there's, it's interesting how, of course, there was simulcast. Of course, there was OVE. ACV was definitely different in how it was facilitated. And it was a newcomer on the block. And it, it, it carved out a new, a new niche and a new way of doing the transactions. I think we've learned a lot though, too. And me personally, I've been humbled. I made a lot of mistakes at ACV. There's stuff that I thought was going to work. That absolutely didn't. I, I think that there's a weird dynamic that's going to be challenging to overcome no matter what. When you have a seller, a third party supposed to be agnostic inspector, and you have a buyer. And all these platforms are reliant on that. And I think no matter what you, you, when you have three parties in a, in a potential debate, in an arbitration situation, you get a lot of finger pointing and it becomes very hard to get clear line of sight as to where that mistake may lie. How do you solve that? I think it's a big re-education, honestly. And, and these are not, that's not an easy thing to do. But you have sellers that know they can get away with things. You have buyers who end up being on the receiving end of that. You also have buyers that know that they can create fraudulent or, you know, pesky arbitration claims and get paid. So they're creating a second income stream. If they can, if they feel like they can consistently on average get about $500 back because they complain, they, you, you, you basically just erode the platforms, right? You, it's not healthy to have those sort of behaviors going on. It's not healthy to have sellers, unscrupulous sellers sliding cars past inspectors. And then you have inspectors who are very inconsistent. And that's that's partly because the human yeah, element and for of anyone it. listening, I mean you're referring to the inspectors that are checking these cars before they go on the wholesale platform. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you can educate these 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 folks to a high degree and some of them are excellent. Some of them are probably better car people than I am. But what I what I really know to be true is that if an unscrupulous seller 
wants to get off a basket case car and not be honest about it, there's always a way. These these folks are professional car dealers. They know how to get something past an inspector, especially an inspector who they can't really drive the car. They're not they're not taking it up to highway speed. You know, they've got they've got a 20 minute interaction with that car. So I know I could do it to to somebody too. I could absolutely dupe an inspector if I wanted to. So, you know, you got so there you go. You got three competing kind of factors that when you put that in the blender and turn it on, it just becomes messy, right? And it's hard to see who who's the good seller, who's the trustworthy inspector, who's the honest buyer who they buy the car, it's a great car, they know they're going to make $2,500 on this F-150 when they retail it. But instead of just being happy with that, they find, you know, a couple PDR dents that weren't disclosed, they find, you know, God knows what. And then they go and they make an arbitration claim and they waste everybody's time and, and that, you know, and they get a check that costs that auction money. Who do you think pays for that? Everybody pays for it. The fees have to go up to, to compensate. It just becomes very messy. You know, everything you're saying to me, it, it just sounds like there's a systemic incentive issue in the industry. Right. And I think that. You know, I, I posted about this a couple of weeks back. I wrote about, you know, I believe, you know, a new wave of entrepreneurs that will hit the market in automotive. And some of the things that went through my mind are, you know, I was speaking with a reporter the other day and they were asking me about the job board. We just launched an industry job board for, you know, it's completely free for anyone to, you know, post a role in the industry, get a role. We've already had hundreds of postings or over a hundred postings and, you know, dozens of companies joined. Anyways, the point is they asked me a question, which I thought was interesting. They said, wait, how can you do this for free? Like, how can you, you know, quote, unquote, put food on the table? And I said something similar to you. I said, I don't have investors. I don't have a board. I am making my own decisions. And I think when you operate that way, I think it's very powerful because you're not a public company, right? It doesn't mean you'll never have investors or anything or a board, but you're not a public company, right? You can set your own incentives when earning another buck or, you know, creating, quote, unquote, shareholder value is not the kind of be all end all, and you can make longer term decisions for the company, you can simply build a better product. And to your point, you can fix a broken system, which is not an easy thing to do. Totally agree. I'm I'm an old school entrepreneur. I'm like a Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill. Like Those are my heroes. (laughs) But I'm serious. And, And so like, when people ask me about building a business and how do you do it? To me, it's very simple in theory. And that is, how can you add more value for your customers? If you can consistently add more value to your customer's experience, the universe at large will reward you financially. It's just that simple. But notice, like you said, it's it's value to your customers, not value to shareholders. When it's value to shareholders, you make short-term, this quarter, next quarter decisions, which may be to the detriment of adding value to your customers. Unfortunately, when when a company becomes that complicated, you really don't have a choice because if you don't hit your numbers, the management team goes out the door, you know, and, and those people want to survive and those people want to be there as long as they can. But it's just a lot of internal conflict. Yeah. And look, ultimately, if you create value for your customer and your you know end user, whoever, ultimately, that will result in value for the shareholder. It's just about time horizons. That's the delta here, right? Is your time horizon a decade or is it three months? Right. And when you're, and when you're trying to raise money and when you're trying to like, you know, do these things to appease investors, you, you definitely end up in internal conflict. Well, I think you should prepare for a barrage of emails and DMs after this <laughs> podcast because lots of people are going to be wanting to throw some cash at you. Let me ask you something a bit more personal. Why did you leave ACV? It was just time. Honestly, I know that's, I know that's not going to satisfy you know, maybe I can give a little more context, but companies change. I'm an early stage entrepreneur. You know, I very much like to be uh, feet on the ground, belly to belly with my customers. And when companies get big, it just becomes harder and harder to do that. And I, I can't really be myself if I have to go through, you know, a corporate process to go and make changes, make decisions. And, and I understand why that came to be, 
you know, the company had 2,000 employees. But I wasn't adding value. And I think I value my self-worth or, or see my self-worth as, am I being a positive change agent? Can I, can I, you know, can I help people? And when it got to the point where I kind of felt like I couldn't really do that anymore, I wasn't really waking up feeling energized and fulfilled every day. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're an early stage guy. And to be, to be honest, it's, it's pretty shocking that you actually made it that far in the company, you know, public venture backed, raising billions of dollars. That's not very common. You know, it happens, but it's not that common. Yeah, we, we raised hundreds of millions and then the company ended up having a, a multi-billion dollar valuation when it pub- went public. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I look back and to me, great lessons learned. I've matured a lot through that process and I think I continue to mature beyond it. But founders like myself, I mean, think about that, a used car guy founder, that's not an easy person to go and uh, work with every day. I'm sure. You know, we're, we're headstrong and we're very opinionated and charged up every day. And so it was, it was a great run, but, but it, it reached its, it reached its time horizon. You know, did you, did you guys ever think Mannheim or Odessa would purchase you? Yeah. You know, I I learned a lot about venture capital too. And I don't think I'm going to say anything out of turn here, but basically as the company raised more money, all that went really well. I mean, it wasn't, None of it was easy behind the scenes. Um, but as you raise more and more money at higher and higher valuations, your, right, your pool of available acquirers goes, goes down. down. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if that go public, were, baby, that's your only option. It you really go was public. the only option. And being a venture backed company, we needed to have an exit strategy. And that just became really the only one. You know, I think there were suitors at some point, but. Those valuations from each each successive round of of funding got higher and higher, and then you know who's really going to write a a billion plus dollar check? And the reality is, you know, you think about the time you went public, you know, a company like yours trading for any, for anyone listening that, that that's not familiar familiar with these terms, I mean, you're trading at a revenue multiple, right? You're valued on your total revenue, whereas you know a traditional business. You know, a value business, a non-growth business is trading, it's valued on an EBITDA multiple or on your earnings. And so it makes the hurdles so much tougher. I mean, I, I experienced a similar thing in my time at Getacar, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot tougher at that point because, you know, you're trying to sell potentially a company that's f- being valued on revenue to a company that is, you know, valued on earnings. And again, there's just such a big gap in valuation. To bridge that gap is almost impossible. You do see... Growth companies like ACV and you know acquiring value businesses pretty often, I would say, or that's more common. But the the flip side is a, m- a lot more uncommon. Yeah, I mean, look, growth growth companies don't fit well in conventional organizations. I don't think, and and truthfully, I think that if ACV were to have been bought by Car Global or um, or the Cox, you know, enterprise, I, I don't know if it would have served it well. I think I think a lot of maybe the early poking around was thinking about, hey, if we acquire them, we can put them on a shelf and <laughs> and quiet down, you know, their their growth. It's funny to me. It's funny to me to be talking about this so openly now because you know now I'm not anonymous. So I can yeah. talk to my more of my personal experiences. Give us some like boots on the ground insight. I mean, you're very involved with dealers. I've I've been seeing your most recent posts on social media, on Facebook, and whatnot. What are you seeing right now? What's happening in the wholesale market right now? A lot. L- let me back up and say, you know, my interactions with the dealers, I-, I really like to me, they're my peers. I know I'm in a different economic situation, but that's that's new. And that's really not going to change me a whole lot. These are the folks I confide in. These are the folks that I want to help. And so, you know, part of the reason you and I are having this conversation is because I, I genuinely put on those Facebook groups some flirting little posts to go and say, hey, I'm kind of bored being retired, you know. Anybody got any ideas on what I should do next? And I mean it because they're the ones who are running the businesses every day. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a car dealer in my mind, but I'm not actively in their business every day. And there's a lot of them that are asking me to go and start another marketplace. So I don't take that lightly. You know, I think that they, they see the need. And if they see the need, I think it's a valid calling. So. I'll, I'll start with that, right? Or we'll, we can park that. 
you know, I think, I think we're in a big rotation right now. And I'm not just talking about values, but I'm talking about everything. Everything's going to get harder. But I personally, like, that puts a big smile on my face. And the reason I say that is because post COVID, there's been so much laziness that's taken over in car dealerships. And I'm not trying to be mean. It's just, it was too easy. Right. And I was one of those people. I wanted a new suburban. I paid sticker for it. Like, when in the world would I ever go to? Not only that, like, I eight states away to go and get it because they're the ones that had it. So this, this, lopsided demand made it so easy for dealers that if they had it, it was, you know, if they had the piece in inventory, it's good as sold. That's not what this business is all about. Okay. But when those things happen, I think, I think you get phenomena wherever they kind of like fools rush in, right? Everybody goes, oh, there's so much money in the car business. Hence vroom, hence shift, right? And I could go on and on because there's a lot of smaller players that kind of got too big for their britches or maybe weren't the best operators and it's anybody can make money when when a rising tide lifts all ships but when that starts to come back down it really separates those who know this business and can can withstand the ups and downs versus those who are way too lopsided you know own way too much inventory don't own the right inventory and it really, it catches them, it catches up quick. So I like this because to me, it's it's a necessary clearing out of a lot of noise in the industry. What uh, is? Tightening economic situation. Oh, the tightening economic. Yep, yep. So I, I think it's actually a good thing. I think we've got, I think we've got some time still to go for this like to shake out. I mean, car prices are strong, right? Wholesale prices are strong. It's tax season. So that's all normal. But I think we're still struggling a bit to find that right marketplace. And I think dealer, I think there's a level of uncertainty among dealers about how much inventory to stock, where these prices are going to be, you know, retail prices versus wholesale prices in, in a month from now, in, in three months from now. So I don't know, like, I come back to because I get asked a lot about what, what should a dealer do, knowing that there's this level of uncertainty and things are coming down and the economy is I don't think the economy is going to crash. I just think things are getting tighter. And again, I think that's back to normal versus like some bad situation. What I find a lot of dealers are doing is they're looking, anytime this happens, they're looking for a silver bullet. I don't think there's any silver bullet in this business. I think it's, you got to do a deep dive, look in the mirror on your own best practices in your dealership. And this goes top to bottom, big new car stores, big new car groups, right down to a small buy here, pay here guy who's got 20 cars on the lot. How are you presenting your cars? I know this sounds so basic, but like, do your pictures look good or do your pictures suck? Or do you have like stock image photos on your website? You know, do you have an AI generated description of a car or do you have a genuine, what at least, at least what resonates to me is do you have a genuine description written about that car from somebody who actually knows the car? Are your calls getting answered? I mean, you've probably done this. I know I have. I've tried to buy something and I don't get a call back. Espe- especially with service providers, I got to say. But it happens at dealerships all the time. I mean, it's funny how everything you're saying, I'm nodding. It's like fundamentals, you know, it's like simple stuff. We've sort of gotten to a point where, you know, we've, we're, we are over optimizing in many, you know, many industries on this technology and all these advancements. But the fundamentals, to your point, it's what moves the needle in many cases here. And, and to your, like you said, if you don't have the fundamentals down, Everything else is just, you know, to waste. It, it's the best practices, right? Like to me, a lot of this stuff, it, it's not sexy and that's why it doesn't get attention. I'm sure I could go sell an AI chat bot to go and sit on somebody's website. Who's that really serving? The customer who's in their underwear at three o'clock in the morning. That's not the customer you really need to serve. The customer you need to serve is the person that calls and didn't get a call back or called and talked to a BDC person who's not knowledgeable about that car at all, and it didn't get handed off properly, like there's your customer and you dropped them versus trying to go and catch some customer who's, I don't think really even. I mean, I take a bit of a different side. Like, I I, I think that it's two separate things, right? I think the fundamentals are the fundamentals. I think, you know, pushing tech, pushing AI and all these things in order to continue attempting to improve the experience, get to some parity with other industries that are having a more online centric experience where, you know, in the auto business, we're a bit less so 
I think that's a good thing. It's healthy. You know, similar to what you did with ACV, it takes time. And so, you know, there's going to be many iterations of all these different tools and whatnot, but you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't replace the fundamentals. And if you don't have that down, then it's all a waste. And that's what I see with the silver bullet comment I made before. Instead of focusing on the hard work of tightening up your process, they're trying to find, you know, these, these cheap things. What, what's a, what's a 399 thing I can buy that's going to go do this for me? I, I don't think there is. You know, people ask me, and especially so at ACV, we had a lot of people and I didn't really call them, they're not really salespeople. I mean, they're out there slinging a product in a marketplace, but it's a, it should be a very reputation-based and relationship-based experience between that person in, in territory who is the representative for the auction and, and these dealerships. And I had a kind of different approach to what I, what I really thought made that person great. And I see this in dealerships all the time too. The best salespeople are storytellers. And they're not, they're not making up stories. They're not liars. They just know how through story they can make connection with people. And once you make connection with people, then people want to buy from you. That's hard to do. That's hard to teach. Now, some people naturally have it, right? But that's a hard skill to go and teach. But that's so much more effective than like menu selling or something like that. I mean, I just went in to potentially buy a, buy a new truck and the sales guy was super nice and I still might buy from him. Super nice guy. But he didn't even ask me my name and he didn't even give me his name. And so there was no like... Very transactional. Yeah. And I was waiting for it. I'm like, are we going to connect it all here? You know, because I don't want to buy from somebody. I don't want to go make a $80,000 decision on a, on a new truck from somebody I don't feel like I can connect with. And I will say this too, like I'm not a total caveman here, man. I was selling 500 something cars online retail a, a decade before Carvana existed. And the way we did that was presentation. And then we got people to, I mean, some people just called and, or clicked to buy it. Now other people called, but when they called, they spoke to a human who connected with them and was interested in where are you calling from? Oh, I, you know, I was there three years ago. You connect through story. These are, I, I don't know how this gets overlooked so much, but it's not. <laughs> and I don't think AI is going to do that. I don't want to connect. I don't want to, I don't want to marry a computer. I don't want to buy from a computer. I mean, there's. Uh, this is good. <laughs> This is great. I might be way down a rabbit hole. You can, you can, no, no, you're good. You're good, man. I love it. So before we wrap up and, and I, and I want to know, well, before we get there, I do have one more question for you. You know, I, I recently had Brian Kramer on the podcast from, from Cars Commerce and, you know, he was a former GM at a Toyota store in Florida. Anyways, he mentioned that he, he's looking at his data and that 22% of used cars right now on dealership lots are over 90 days old, which doesn't sound good. And that is actually about, I, I believe the number was about 10% higher than where it was five to six months ago. So clearly there's a problem right now in the industry that is real time where cars are aging on dealer's lots. What do you think about this? Where are we headed? What's next? It, it'll clear out, but it'll be painful. Look, all of our decision-making is, is typically retrospective, okay? When, when people look at Mannheim market report, when they look at MMR, that's old data. So people base their decisions on last month or three month old or six month old transactions. And so a lot of these cars, they were just bought wrong. And that's kind of a universal thing. And it takes time to really clear that out. I'm not going to be as sophisticated or I'm not going to be able to provide as sophisticated an answer as he is. But to me, I think you need sharp buyers. Like, like one of the main thing that I used to see was a lack of sophistication when it came to buying there's there's really great buyers and then there's other people that it's almost too easy to just press the button and, and buy on simulcast and, and think you're just stocking a unit to me success in a car dealership even at even at massive scale like carmax comes down to car by car and as soon as you are not car by car and you're not thinking car by car you you've you've lost it and you might be able to cruise for a while, like, like Vroom did, you know, and I wouldn't know the inner workings of that business. So I don't want to go and poo poo it. It's unfortunate what happened there, but the size that they were trying to operate, I'd be shocked if they could have that 
touch level, car by car. How do we recon this car? How do we, what do we do? What don't we do on this car? How do we price this car, you know, for what this car is? I, I am of the belief that you, you have to touch each car and you have to have a sharp person doing that and making the decision, right? And, and, and lobbying for that car's best outcome. A lot of these dealerships, they are not set up as used car factories. Most are not. Most are set up where you have a retail service department that is looking to maximize at the used car department's uh, detriment. I'm all for retail, retail service, but you should have a separate used car operation to go set those cars up. Cars, here's my, here's my, one of my Joeisms. Cars are not commodities. Used cars are not commodities. Everybody wants to say they're not. They're all different and then they need to be treated differently. It's not to say you can't scale it. CarMax has managed to scale this. But in every dealership, they have extremely well-trained people making the decisions on how to recon that car, how to price that car. And that's where the magic is made. And if, if you, if you get, if you fly too high above that, I think you're on a, a path to nowhere. Well put, my friend. Joe Neiman, one message you want to leave our audience with. What is it? Um, I didn't say this before. So I don't, I don't fully know what I'm doing next, but I think I'm going to do something next. And I'd love to connect with as many people as possible when the time comes on that. So the domain that I went and captured was dealerclub.com. And by the time this episode airs, we'll have a, a simple entry form there to just put some information in. Give us your email, give us a phone number. You know, if you're a dealer, whatever I do will be in the dealer space, you know, dealer to dealer consumers here. You can certainly check it out and if you're interested, but you can't, you can't play in my sandbox. But again, it's going to be dealerclub.com. I think that's all I got to say. I love to hear it. We'll throw the link up in the show notes below as well. We'll also add your email down there or do you, if you want to say it here as well. So if people want to reach out. Sure. Joe at dealerclub.com. And yeah, find me there. I am not a big social media guy besides doing my Facebook car dealer groups. So, there's not a whole lot to say. I don't know, man. I think you're a pretty big social media guy. You're pretty uh, good at it. No, you got me all wrong. <laughs> you might have to bring you to the car dealership guy creator network. <laughs> you can do that for me. Done. Love it. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. It's been awesome. Appreciate it, Yossi. Great time. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.